Please turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Ephesians, New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is in the GE Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5. We'll read this morning verses 25 through 33. You've made your way to Ephesians 5. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word before we read. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, husband to your bride, head of the church, our Redeemer and our God, we come before you seeking your favor. We ask for grace for your people. We pray that the ordained means by which you have said that you would dispense grace would be effectively worked in us this morning. Let us see Christ. Let us see who we are in him. Pray in Jesus name. Amen. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their wives, their own wives, as their own bodies. He who lo loves his own wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. A Reformed theologian and Princeton professor of biblical theology named Gerhardus Voss <coughs> believed that all the New Testament is eschatology. All the New Testament is eschatology. That's the study of end times. I think it's an interesting idea to think about all of the New Testament. And by the way, uh, just a couple of things that I didn't put in my notes. Gerhardus Voss was a contemporary and taught with J. Gresham Machen and B.B. Warfield at Princeton. Uh, you may have never have heard of Voss. He's somebody you ought to check out. Uh, the idea and the, the argument that Voss presents as all the New Testament being eschatology is a pretty good argument. And it's interesting to think through how we might see all of the New Testament writings as 
pointing us to and informing our view of end times. But I believe that similar statements could be made about other things, like all of the New Testament is Christology, the study of Christ. And maybe we could even say all of the Bible is Christology, the study of Christ. Or all of the Bible is soteriology, the study of salvation and the plan of salvation. To make such statements, we are saying that our particular positions and beliefs in these different areas of study, eschatology, Christology, soteriology, must encompass and consider all that the Bible says. We remember the analogy of scripture prevents us from holding a position in any area of study which does not square with the rest of the Bible in all other areas. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And if your view contradicts the Bible in any place, your view is wrong. Now I want this morning to add to these statements, to add to what Voss said, all the New Testament is eschatology. And I want to add, in light of our current topic of study, all of the New Testament is ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, the study of the church, the doctrine of the church. All of the New Testament relates to and informs our understanding of Christ's church. And all of the Old Testament contributes to our, our ecclesiology as well. In the covenant of redemption before Creation before time, Christ was in the covenant of redemption guaranteed a people. A people that we call the church, the ecclesia, or the assembly. In, in the scripture, often we see the church referenced without using the term ecclesia or without using the term church we see it like this to the saints at Ephesus the church our confession refers to the church it says uh, it refers to all those who are elect who are have been or shall be gathered under the headship of Christ and our confession refers to this group of all the saints who have been, are, or shall be gathered under Christ as the universal church. Now, if you were here Wednesday night, you're going to say, hey, I've heard this, some of this before. Uh, the, the confession refers to this group of all believers from all time in all places as the universal church. It also uses the term Catholic church, lowercase c Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but lowercase c Catholic, that word meaning universal. So it uses the term Catholic with a lowercase c and universal. And it, and it also uses this term, uh, this, this universal church can also be called invisible. The invisible church. And that indicates the invisible nature of the work of the spirit in working faith and repentance in a sinner. You don't see that with your eyes. It's an invisible work. It is visible to, to God, but invisible to us. So all the elect across all time around the world from every tribe, every tongue, every people 
are the universal church. But those saints in a particular region at any given time, by the command of Christ, we are to assemble together to make up particular societies. Now I'm using confessional language. I'll use a lot of our confessional language this morning to make up particular societies. And we call those churches, particular local church. We have the church universal and the church local. Our text today from Ephesians, many of you, when I read it, was like, oh, we're going to have a sermon about husbands and wives. Uh, but our text is, is clearly speaking about the church. In verse 32, Paul is very clear when he says he speaks about Christ and the church. Now, we certainly benefit greatly from these verses by learning how a husband is to love his wife. But this in the end, is a metaphor, a word picture, if you will, of Christ and his bride, the church. Verses 26 and 27, which will be the verses that we, that we take from today, we learn that Jesus is not after a haggard, filthy, wrinkled, wife. Jesus has loved his wife and gave himself for her. Gave himself in his life and in his death to sanctify her, the text tells us, to sanctify her, to present her to himself cleansed without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I I never went to a school that had show and tell, but when I read these verses, I think about show and tell. I think about the, the presenting of the church to Christ. This sanctifying of the church that is spoken of here, the cleansing of her, the sanctification is to be understood in two ways. We need to understand sanctifying, sanctification in two ways, positionally and progressively. Or, or we might say instantaneous sanctification and gradual sanctification. So we understand sanctification in these two ways. Uh, praise be to God that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus all who believe in him are instantaneously sanctified. We are positionally sanctified, set apart, belonging to Christ, forgiven of our sin, clothed in his righteousness so that we are truly called sons of God, fellow heirs with Christ, saints by calling. Now we hear the word saint used in a different way, but Church, we are saints through Jesus Christ. Oh, well, I don't feel like much of a saint. Well, you don't look like much of a saint sometimes either. But positionally, instantaneously, through Christ, we are sanctified. We are saints. But there is also a gradual or a progressive sanctification which we experience while we are here going through life on this earth, life under the sun, as Kohelet says. 
This progressive sanctification is what Christ is doing. You wonder, what is Jesus, what is God doing in my life? Sanctification. Paul tells us in Thessalonians, this is the will of God. How many people are looking for the will of God? Maybe you came today thinking, I just want to find God's will. This is the will of God, your sanctification. The testimony of the church as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, that gradual sanctification, the, the testimony that we have must be a testimony of the grace of God as well as the power of Christ over sin. There must be integrity in the church. Jesus is not looking for a haggard, filthy, wrinkled bride. The church, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We adorn the gospel. As Peter made his great confession concerning Jesus, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't know if you thought about it. Christ is the, um, the Gentile word that Messiah would be. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. As Peter made this confession, Jesus said, upon the rock and foundation of that truth, he would build his church. Jesus is building the church on the rock of true confession of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the integrity of the church is paramount. Our Ephesians text speaks of the cleansing of the church, that the church, the bride of Christ would be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing would be holy and blameless. Peter wrote to the church in his second epistle in chapter one, his second letter with all diligence, add to your faith. What we, we have faith in Christ. What should we add to our faith? Moral excellence, or as, as the King James says, virtue. Add to your moral excellence, knowledge. To your knowledge, add self-control. To your self-control, add perseverance. To your perseverance, add godliness. To your godliness, add brotherly kindness. To your brotherly kindness, add love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sin. He continues, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make your calling and election sure. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. This passage in 2 Peter speaks to the character of the church. Because the integrity of the church is paramount. Our confession speaks to this integrity, the integrity of the church of Jesus Christ in chapter 26, titled of the church. Listen to these statements from paragraph three of the second London Baptist confession of faith. The purest churches under heaven 
are subject to mixture and error. Well, we know that to be true, don't we? The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. It continues, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Our confession here is speaking of true churches, but found in those true churches, found in all true churches, local New Testament churches, is error, is sin. We see this in Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, there was open sin in one of its members. We see this in the book of Revelation when Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus. There's something wrong. And these are true churches. These are true churches, but there is some level of, some measure of error, some measure of sin. Our confession sounds a warning to us that a true church may stray so far from the truth as to lose its integrity to the, to the degree that it ceases to become a church of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many times we sit in a church or this church or other churches and we think this church will always be a church not without the diligence of the people it, it may be difficult to see I, I mean we we understand the idea that a true church can become no church of Christ a synagogue of Satan but it may be difficult to see the moment that a church crosses that line I'm not saying you can never see that, but sometimes it's, it's hard to see. But there are markers of the true church. There are characteristics of a true church that, that when a congregation of believers abandon those essential characteristics, they have passed over the barrier and become, in the words of our confession, synagogues of Satan. These essential marks, these characteristics of the integrity of the church are found in all New Testament churches from the time of the apostles until our Lord returns. So these marks of integrity or characteristics of integrity of the universal church. Now there may be things added to this list, but here are a few of these markers right teaching on the deity and humanity of Christ. That Jesus is fully God and fully man without mixture or delusion of, delusion of either in nature. Another mark of integrity of the church is the Trinitarian doctrine. God is one and three. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. A true church teaches a Trinitarian doctrine. A third mark of a, the integrity of a church, 
would be right teaching on the sinfulness of man. That all men have inherited the guilt and the nature of sin from our father Adam and inheriting this guilt and this nature condemns us to eternal hell and that sin nature within us produces sinful acts which further condemn us. Another mark of a true church with integrity is our soteriology, I use that word, our study of salvation. To teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As we think of the integrity of the universal church, uh, and, and by the way, the universal church, the, our, our confession says the invisible church, the invisible church may be seen at any given time in the particular expressions of the church in local congregations. You can see a picture of the invisible church in the visible local church. And, and as we think of the integrity of the church universal, we note that a robust confession of faith is key. A robust confession of faith is is of great value to us. A historic confession of faith like the Second London Baptist Confession that we hold to at this church, it connects each local congregation to Christian congregations in history. And, and this morning I would add to Christian congregations, true churches in other places. This morning we are privileged to have visitors from a sister church that also holds to the same confession that we do. And we have these things in common. And a confession of faith is, is so important and it's key to us to maintain the integrity of the church. A confession of faith provides boundaries like the banks of a river to keep the church in the stream of orthodoxy. In addition to the integrity of the church universal, the integrity of the local church is also paramount. And the integrity of the local church is supplied and maintained by the members of a particular congregation. The integrity of Waco Family Baptist Church comes from the supply and the maintenance of our members and the integrity of those believers. First of all, as Reformed Baptists, we believe in a professing church, a professing church membership. Now, some have called this, some have termed this, this belief in a professing church membership as a believing church membership. And we would admit that a believing church membership is certainly the goal but due to the fact that the faith of men and women is invisible and therefore we have no power to perfectly inspect faith and repentance, we would, we would say that we have a professing membership. We have a professing membership. And we see, we believe we see a professing membership in the pages of scripture. When we read 
of those who heard the gospel and believed being added to the church. Their profession of faith in and obedience toward Christ was the basis upon which they were added to the number of a local church congregation. And again, chapter 26 of our confession speaks of this in paragraph two. All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation are and may be called visible saints and of such visible saints, all particular congregations are to be in, uh, constituted. So we have in this statement, we're going, to, we're going to look at this a little bit more in depth. We have in this statement, the constitution of the local church. Now, now I don't mean our constitution and bylaws constitution, but our makeup. What makes us up the constitution of the local church? We have this found here and, and we have as well the connection to and membership in the universal church. We see this. We see this connection in some of the Pauline epistles. Uh, as in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 where Paul addresses the church of God at Corinth. Well, that's a local congregation. That's a local church. The church of God at Corinth to them who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. That's still speaking of the local congregation just calling them in a different way. And now he connects this local congregation to the church universal. Paul says with all, that is with all the saints, that in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So the church is constituted of people who profess faith in and obedience to Christ. Not all people, by the way, the church is not constituted of all people. The church is not constituted of believers and their children who have not professed. The church is constituted of professing believers. So this constitution of the church or the constituent members of the church are marked by two things. First of all, a profession of faith according to the gospel. To say it a different way, church members must be, first of all, believers in Jesus Christ, professing faith in Jesus Christ. And a second mark of a church member is obedience to God through Christ. A profession of a living faith and evidence of that living faith seen in obedience to God. So local church members should be professing faith and living in obedience. And our confession restates these two characteristics, professing faith and living in obedience. It restates those characteristics of local church members, but it restates them in negated terms. So there's professing and obeying paired with not holding to errors, averting the foundation and not living lives of unholiness of conversation. Professing and obeying, not holding to fundamental errors and not living in unholy lives. A church member should positively profess faith according to the gospel 
And then on the negative side, not hold to fundamental or foundational errors. Our confession uses this term, errors averting the foundation. Now that seems unfamiliar a language to us. We don't use the term everting very often. But the word gives us the idea of turning something inside out. Or you might say turning something upside down. My, my mother, I remember, I remember plainly my mother teaching me, when you put your clothes in the hamper, she didn't use this term, but here's what she said. Don't invert your shirts. Keep them right side out. Don't turn them in. That's the word everting. Everting, turning inside out. And a church member can hold to certain errors, certain doctrinal errors, which turn the gospel of Jesus Christ inside out and upside down. There are errors that evert the foundation. Now there are many errors which a church member may hold to and still be called a brother in Christ and still be a church member in good standing. I often refer to this R.C. Sproul quoted Calvin saying that no theologian is more than 80% right. And Sproul went on to say, if Calvin scores a B minus, where does that put me? Christians, we, we know that our salvation, praise God, does not depend on being perfect in our doctrine. How many of you have come to Christ and then after that grown in doctrine? <laughs> Aren't you glad that your salvation wasn't dependent on getting it all right from the beginning? We're glad of that. And, and our church membership is not dependent on perfectly articulating every doctrine of the church. When we... Uh, when your pastors interview folks for church membership, we often ask, are there any beliefs that you hold, any doctrines that you that you hold to, which are not in agreement with the teaching or the doctrines of the church, of our, of our church? And we say there are some doctrinal disagreements, some doctrinal differences, which do not bar a person from membership, but there are some areas of difference that would bar a person from membership. What we're doing as we interview and we ask this question is we are protecting, we are guarding the integrity of the local church. And if someone differs with our church, uh, differs with our confession on a topic like church polity or end times, something like that, we, we say, Though those topics are important, the Bible doesn't address anything that's unimportant. It's all important. But though those doctrines are important, those differences will not prevent that person from joining this church. But if a person differs from our church doctrine and our, church, our confession on other topics like the ones we mentioned before, the humanity and deity of Christ, if someone were to say, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth, the triune nature of God, I, I don't believe in the Trinity. Those differences will bar membership. Those are things which to use confessional language, evert the foundation. 
Those things turn the gospel inside out. Here's what I mean. Let's flesh this out a bit. If a person denies the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, then according to their belief, Jesus would only be an ordinary man and then not qualified and not able to be a savior. If a person denied the Trinity, for instance, a modalist, that would evert the gospel. That would indicate someone who is not a true believer. This being a heretical doctrine. And therefore they would not be admitted into membership of this local church. And now it's important to say here that we're talking about denying these important doctrines as opposed to not fully understanding these doctrines. Someone who does not fully understand the virgin birth and its implications could still be a believer and could still be admitted to local church membership. Of course, we would hope to see that person grow in their understanding of that doctrine. If a person doesn't fully understand the Trinity, what do we say? Welcome to the club. <laughs> No one fully grasps the Trinity. Same with the humanity of Jesus Christ, the humanity and deity. Uh, you've often heard me say, we, we call that the hypostatic union. And I use that big word because it's easier to say the big word than it is to explain the doctrine in detail. The, the humanity and deity of Christ, if, if someone doesn't fully understand these things, we see there an indication where discipleship is needed, where teaching is needed. But denial of these doctrines destroys a person's profession of faith because they hold to error, everting the foundation. So professing belief in the gospel is paired with its negation of holding to error, everting the foundation, holding to foundational or fundamental error and the second marker of or characteristic of the believer the church member the constituent church member is positively stated obedience to God by Christ and negatively stated not destroying their profession by unholy conversation again we're using here confessional language we need to we need to define that a little bit as modern English speakers we we need to understand the word confession or the word conversation as it was used in 1689 differently than we understand it, how we use it today. When we use the word conversation, we mean talking. We, we mean talking to one another. And that's all that's there. But, but we need to understand the word conversation when we see it in our King James Bible, when we see it in our confession of faith, it means far more than just talking. Talking is certainly included, I believe. But, but what conversation means here is a way of life. You might say lifestyle, the way in which we live. So that being said, a, a person who professes to be a Christian can, by their way of life being unholy, by their unholy conversation, destroy that profession, revealing themselves not to be true believers. We should say here that this unholiness of life, it's not to say that Christians don't sin. Are you saying members of this church don't sin? No, we're not saying that at all. 
This speaks to a lifestyle, a continual pattern of unholy living. Every member of every local church will sin and we do sin. And that will be true till the Lord returns or till the Lord takes us to heaven. But true believers, members of a local church must live lives that are not marked by sin and unrighteousness. So local members, members of a local church, I'll say, should be those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to God. Members of a local church are not those who destroy their profession by holding to fundamental errors and they are not leading lives marked by unholiness. As we have stated, the integrity of the church, both universal and local, is paramount. And the integrity of the constituent members of a local church matters. Church members, your sin matters. Remember Joshua 7. Now, we read this text last week in our worship service. Joshua 7, the story of Achan. Achan was a member, and I would say a small member, a small part of Israel. But Achan sinned, and Achan's personal sin affected the whole nation. Because of Achan's personal sin and disobedience to God, Israel lost the battle at Ai, and 36 members of Israel's army lost their lives. 36 families, 36 widows, 36 families with children with no dad, 36 men lost their lives because of the personal sin of one man. And we remember that these Old Testament historical narratives are given to us to serve as examples. And the application to us is that when one church member harbors unrepentant sin, the whole church is affected. The whole church is infected. We also remember from 1 Corinthians 5 that one, that one who was living in open sin, but who was addressed and admonished, the whole church was rebuked. The whole church was, was exhorted to deal with that sin. Because the sin of the one defiles the whole. One picture that we see in the church, we saw it in our text in Ephesians, we see it throughout scripture. One picture of the church often used is the body. We are the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the church. He is the head and we are members of the body. But if there's an infection in one part of the body, you say, I'm sick. If there's an infection in one part of the body, the whole is sick. Remember the admonishment of Christ in Matthew 18 that if your hand or foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, remove it from the body. The integrity of the body of Christ, the church, is so vital that a member bringing unholiness and sin to the body should be cut off 
plucked out, removed from the body. The integrity of the church is paramount. But we know, we know that until the Lord returns, there will be false professors in the church. We sing a song that says, those false sons in her pale. We, we, may, we may wonder, I mean, as we sit here, is anybody thinking, well, I'm glad that's not my problem. I don't have any sin issues. If you're thinking that, you're not paying attention. When we worry about the, the sin of the one affecting the whole, we wonder if the church will be completely corrupted. Will the, will the church survive? And, and the question is, should we be worried? Should we be concerned that the church will not survive? No. We have this assurance as Jesus said he would build his church on that rock of truth that he is the Messiah, the son of God. He also promised that even the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Our confession says in 26.3, Christ always has and ever shall have a kingdom in this world. God always has and always will until Christ returns have a remnant. Have a remnant. And we say with Paul in Romans 11, even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. What, what a blessing. What, what a blessed thing it is to behold the church for whom Jesus Christ lived and died to purchase and to sanctify her. What a privilege and what a joy it is to be part of, a, of the church universal, to hold a common faith with all believers who have come before us. And what an opportunity and a delight it is to be a member of a local New Testament church where we share with one another the blessing as well as the responsibilities of belonging to the household of God. May God convict us and grant to us repentance for the times when we have taken the church for granted when we have neglected the assembly, preferring something else that the world has to offer over the bride of Christ. May God help us to hold the church in high regard, to become churchmen and churchwomen who profess faith in the truth of the gospel and obedience to God in Christ. And not destroying our profession by holding to error, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation. May God help us to be a bride 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. This is what Christ is doing in his church. And the integrity of the church is paramount. God, we thank you that you have given to Jesus Christ a people, the church, his bride, his body, his building. God, we thank you that you have included us members of the covenant in his church. God, convict us of sin. Convict us of righteousness. Help us as individual members of this church and other churches too to look to ourselves, to keep careful watch over our doctrine, what we believe, and over our life, how we live, that we might support and uphold the integrity of the bride of Christ. Help us this local expression of your church at Waco Help us to be faithful to your word. Faithful in teaching and preaching. Help us to truly be a testimony to the grace of God and the power of Christ over sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.